Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. Get your copy at Amazon if you don't have it. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your support and interest. My guest today is a returning guest, Mr. Greg Boyer, one of popular music's most gifted and prominent trombonists. Greg is best known for his stellar horn contributions to Parliament Funkadelic and Prince. In addition to those pillars of funk, he has worked with dozens of other well-known artists, including Chuck Brown, Sheila E., Bootsy Collins, The Gap Band, Stanley Clark, George Duke, David Sanborn, Sanborn, Leonard Skinner, Kid Rock, and Buddy Guy. Funk, rock, jazz, blues, country, and more, Greg has all the stylistic bases covered. Greg's trombone playing has always been spot on and so damn funky, and his high energy stage present has made it all that much more entertaining. Coming up, we'll get more insights and hear more stories from his nearly 40 years as a professional musician. Greg, so glad to have you back again. How are you doing today? Hey, so nice. I had to do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. How's everything today? Everything's great, man. How about yourself? Excellent. Excellent. Glad to hear. I know you're about to go out on tour, so I'm appreciating that you managed to carve out a little uh, spot of time again for us today. It's uh, much appreciated. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. So let's dig in. We're going to uh, hit a few things that we might have missed last time and cover some of the stuff that we didn't cover at all. So there's lots to uh, lots more ground to cover. Let's dig okay. in. Wanted to ask you, Greg, who are some of the horn players, past and present, who you really look up to and appreciate in terms of their talent, artistry, or innovation? Well, I think my earliest influence was a tenor saxophonist, Gene Ammons. He, uh, my mom is a big organ jazz um, aficionado, and she had Richard Groove Holmes, Jimmy Smith, um, Brother Jack McDuff, Reuben Wilson, um, uh, yeah, the list just goes on. It's like whoever was hot on Oregon back then, you know, she probably had that record. And I was always interested in whoever the, the horn players were. And one of the records I remember earliest on was um, Grooving with Jug, Gene Ammons, and, um, and Richard Groove Holmes. Probably, yeah, I, I'd have to say that was my first biggest influence. But, you know, as the years went by and I started getting more into like R&B and funk, you know, it started out with Junior Walker. Then it gravitated heavily toward Macy O'Parker and Fred Wesley, <laughs> strangely enough. Um, they weren't just horn players you know, the side guys or whatever, they actually spoke the language of funk, you know, very well. And it, I was drawn to that. So I would have to say my earliest funky influences were those two guys. 
along with Pee Wee Ellis, you know, who um, I didn't know was the soloist on one cut that I used to love uh, from the James Brown band. So I didn't I had no idea that I'd grow up play with these guys at any point. So it's kind of like, I guess, um, a, a beacon of sorts let me know what was in store for me. So, but yeah, to answer your question, those are my earliest influences. So, and you mentioned uh, organ players. So I was going to ask you, you know, besides horns, what are a few other musicians maybe that were not horn players that, you know, you really looked up to and sort of influenced you? Um, yeah, Hendrix, a big influence, you know, I, I don't know. They, they like to say that he was a little bit ahead of his time and stuff, but I, I was on it right away. And I just like, I'm really digging this. Um, yeah, Richard Groove Holmes, Hendrix, uh, later on, um, well, Larry Graham and Jocko were probably the two most influential bases that I was into coming up. They couldn't be probably more polar opposites, but they couldn't be more similar at the same time. Um, both of them were milestones in bass playing. And, you know, that said, I didn't realize that, you know, they both were, you know, influenced by James Jameson over at Motown. And when I finally put a name to that and I was digging, I was like, wow, you know, because I see where it all comes from now. Matter of fact, when I was coming up, I was playing bass quite a bit uh, in church, and a couple of little pickup situations and stuff. In fact, right when I got the call that I was going to audition with P-Funk, I was playing bass in the band then. Hmm. And horn players, uh, I think drummers probably, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Buddy Miles. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's probably all I can think of now because I could go on for hours about musical influences, but those are the ones that sort of stick out right now. Fair enough, thanks for that. So in your mind, Greg, what distinguishes a competent player from a great one, you know, how can, and how can a casual listener discern, you know, a good trombonist say from an exceptional one? Well, you know, the whole thing, what's good and what's bad is this is individual is fingerprints. But, um, I think that, you know, the way they handle their instrument and the way they fit within the situation musically, and when they're asked to, you know, showcase or take a solo or whatever, what ideas do, you know, what is their DNA? You know, a lot of times you take a solo as sort of like a, you open up the, the book to your character and your soul. So, you know, what comes out when someone opens that book? And that's why I say this is individual fingerprints because, you know, some people could sit there and like or dislike a Fred Wesley, but then they'll gravitate toward uh, a like or dislike a Frank Rosalino. So um, I think ultimately it depends on the person.
but let's say you're you know from where you are um being as educated as you are about it yeah what 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 do you kind of need to hear that makes you go wow um i i, I think one thing is in, in a group situation the person that is more into what makes the band sound good as opposed to what makes them sound good that is not only something that i look for in a musician but um that's one of those things that keeps you working because uh, let's face it, you know, nobody wants a band full of soloists. You know, it's not a band anymore. It's just a collection of great musicians. And, but that, and, you know, I just want somebody to, when they take a solo or whatever, just speak to me. Don't give me, you know, a rundown of what you've been practicing. You know, I don't want to know your strengths. I want to know, you know, how high you can play, how fast you can play or whatever. I want you to speak to me. Now, as you talk, if doing all of those things that are just fantastic on your instrument are part of that, uh, I say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I got to respect that. But as long as you're speaking to me, then that's something that I like. What would you say is the most challenging or difficult aspect of playing the trombone? And, you know, how do you keep up your chops in terms of, you know, you know, your, your, your lips and your stamina? Um, well, practicing helps just, just about everything. But I think for a trombone, because it is such a, a manual instrument, you don't press keys. Um, you don't, you know valves or there are no frets involved every note that you play depends on the position of your hands and to be able to do that with any speed or clarity is one of those things that probably sets the trombone apart from most other instruments in terms of difficulty so you know, you know, to make up for that, you know, what you do is you practice, you know, you work on muscle memory, you work on precision, you work on mouthpiece placement so that whenever you pick the horn up and put it to your face, it's in the exact same place every time. Because it's easy for it to be a millimeter or two off to the center up and down or whatever. And you, you feel like you're playing a completely different instrument when you do that. So that's just, you know, one of the things is you have to practice to develop those kind of habits. So th that's my solution, not just trombone, but any instrument. Is it, is it similar at all to like a fretless bass in terms of, you know, finding that perfect tone? Right. Right. You know, you can't just put your finger on a board anywhere. It has to be in a certain spot. You know, when you have frets, you cut off the string where you need it to and any place behind that you press it down the fret does the job for you but with a fretless um you are totally dependent on you know where your placement of the fingers are to play that thing in tune and that's matter of fact that's one of the things i like about playing well i played when i was playing bass i was playing fretless 
and it was a lot like playing trombone to me. <laughs> and that's why I liked it so much. Plus, it just has a, that more natural wood and finger and no metal. It had that sound, that feel to it. What, what about comparing the difficulty of trombone, say, to tuba, which I, I know you played, or, or sax, or just other instruments? You played with so many. In the like level of difficulty, where's trombone come in? Um, very close to the top, if not at the top. You know, I was um, I would have bands practicing over the house sometimes, and they leave everything there, and I would just you know while you know the week between this rehearsal and the next one, I just go and start playing on all the instruments, and multi. Um, you know, multi-tone instruments like a like a piano. You know, you're playing more than one note at a time. Guitar, you're playing more than one note at a time. To sit there and manage, you know, anywhere between three and seven or eight different notes at one time was a task for me. Um, playing drums, you know, having individual control over each limb and making them all come together in one package rhythmically that was hard for me so but yeah i would i would put piano and drums probably above playing trombone but trombone would probably be in my opinion be the, the third most difficult out of all of them that i've played so then the most difficult in a horn section uh yeah most difficult in a horn section mm -hmm. yeah in our previous conversation, Greg, you mentioned an early band that had the acronym P.O.T. And we actually had a broadcasting glitch uh, when you said the full name of that. And a viewer, you know, wrote in and asked, you know, what was the name of that band? And I believe it was a Bootsy related project. So um, if you could just kind of mention again what that band was and what the relationship was to Bootsy. Oh, uh, it was called People of Tomorrow. and. Uh, it was like a who's who of funk musicians in Baltimore. And from what I understood, they uh, had, you know, they had caught the attention of Bootsy was supposed to come in and produce these guys. And of course that never happened. And now some of the members of that band were from a group called Madhouse. And they were, you know, one of the premier funk bands out of Baltimore in the early 70s. As a matter of fact, they spawned the likes of Gary Mudbone Cooper, who <laughs> used to play in that band. Of course, he went on to play with Bootsy. So, you know, maybe having played, having been in a band with some of those and also being employed by Bootsy, maybe uh, Gary Mudbone Cooper has something to do with the uh, the possibility that band being produced by Bootsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never discussed it, but this is just me playing musical detective here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the name of the band. And they needed a horn section, of course. You know, the story is, you know, Greg, no, Benny Cowan knew Greg Thomas. And of course, Benny was my roommate in college. So he just said, well, I'll just get these three guys together and we can be the horn section. And, well, you know the rest of the story from that point on. <laughs>
Yeah. yeah. So uh, did you work with Bootsy actually after that? Or what was your work with Bootsy? Because we, yes, we talked about P-Funk, but not so much Bootsy last time. Yeah, I played with Bootsy um, his fourth solo LP, This Boot is Made for Funkin'. They went on a tour for that. And we got a horn section together. I think um, Maceo was part of that. And then at the time, P-Funk Horns was four heads deep. It was uh, myself, um, Greg Thomas, Benny Cowan, and a trumpet player, Larry Hatcher. So the five of us, well, along with Maceo, the five of us were the horn section for Bootsy on that tour. And it was like maybe, I can't remember, a couple of weeks or a month or something, but that was the time that I was playing with Bootsy. Then, of course, when we landed a mothership again, Bootsy would join P-Funk on tour. So, yeah, I did play with Bootsy's rubber band for a very short time. What was the difference playing with them versus, you know, Parliament Funkadelic? Well, I think Bootsy holds true more to the, the James Brown formula, you know, lots of practice, very disciplined. This happens at this time, that happens at that time. Very tight show. You know, there was, you know, no looseness, no let's jam here, you know, let's let the groove simmer for a minute. And just sort of a, a uh, a Miles Davis Sun Ra approach to funk, much like George Clinton would do it. So, yeah, Bootsy was very structured in that respect. Mm -hmm. That album had Jam Fan and um, um, Bootsy Get Live. Was that on there too, I think? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I never played on an album with Bootsy, but I only played in uh, the rubber band. So, yeah, when he was cutting all of that stuff, you, you know, he would, he, probably was more into, you know, the Fred Maceo thing because, you know, they have lineage you know, that goes back to, you know, playing with James. So that was pretty much his MO. And and I think that any section he had after that, if you couldn't emulate that, you had to come as close to that as possible. And I had a couple of friends that played with Bootsy and the one thing I told them was, you know, you're where you're sitting in that band is is a legacy seat never lose sight of the people that have played that stuff before you because that's paramount in making that bootsy thing sound good so yeah uh you just had to respect that part of it that aspect of it you know it's bootsy's rubber band the horns have to sound a certain way mm -hmm. and yeah so you know the structure was discipline in that and it was probably polar opposite of playing with George, although they were both just as funky. And Bootsy also, I would think you'd have to um, be a little more adept at playing some of the more down-tempo stuff, you know, like I'd rather be with you and I can't stay, because Bootsy had more soul stuff in his repertoire than P-Funk typically did. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, last time you mentioned about your final P-Funk show being in 1996, and a viewer uh, was actually at that show, apparently, and I think it was in South Carolina, if that's correct. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. He said he thought it was a, 
a fine show. He enjoyed it. He said that some of the crowd seemed a little maybe not so into it because some of the new material was being done or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but from his perspective, he enjoyed it. And um, just wanted to share that and, and also ask you if you're still in touch with uh, Bernie and Greg, you know, even though you're not part of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked Benny, Benny. Yeah, I talked yeah. to Benny and Greg. Uh, well, not a lot, but you know, I talked to him, uh, you know, a couple of times a year. Matter of fact, I was just talking to Benny maybe a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know, at length. So yeah, I'm still in touch with those guys. But it, it, it's funny because a lot of people will will say I saw this show and I thought it was great, and I saw this show I thought it was great, but I guess when you've seen the band really, really kicking ass, you know, the bar has been set pretty high. And when it doesn't meet that, you know, it feels more like a job than it does a gig. I'm not, not saying that the band was just like awful or rotten or anything like that. It just wasn't what I was used to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm as far as the lineups that I've been in, I might be a little bit partial to, you know, like 83, 84, mid eighties bands, you know, for the, the, the mere fact that, you know, all of us in like the Baltimore and DC area kind of inflicted our DNA onto what was already a, a very well-known funky juggernaut of a band called Parliament Funkadelic or P-Funk All-Stars, depending on, you know, winning the, the legal lease, you know, you speaking of it. So, yeah, I'm, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to mince words, man. That was my favorite band and everything that didn't, that came after that didn't measure up to it. I was like, okay, well, you know, it is what it is. So, but that didn't stop people from enjoying the show. So, <laughs> that's just, but, yeah, when, when I quit, I just, you know, had had a, a, enough of it and I just was looking for something different. So hadn't been with the band 19 years at that point. You know, it just had gotten old. It's like there's, there's something different. There's something, you know, better. There's something new. There's something refreshing out there and I want to go find it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Greg, I'd seen them through all those periods, too, in the 70s and 80s, 90s, and um, just a couple of months ago in Charlotte. Yeah. And um, so I can totally appreciate what you're saying, and I've seen the changes, too. And there was a period there where they were kind of just, you know, kind of almost like kind of going through the motions. And yeah. um, But I got to tell you, when I saw them a couple of months ago, it had been several years, and I think that there is uh, some good new energy in the band with the like, you know, third generation, second generation guys that are coming up. And um, I think that, you know, what I, what I saw and heard there, um, you know, I saw something positive there. So I think, yeah, I think good things are happening now, but there was a lull for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you said, you know, it's, um, it's a whole new crop coming up now. You know, the grass has been cut and the weeds are gone and there's new growth underneath. And and notably, uh, Garrett Scheider is coming in, taking his dad's place. Uh, I mean, you're not ever going to fill those shoes, but, you know, the guy is doing it the way he wants to do it. You know, sometimes it's not 
beneficial to sit there and try to emulate the person before you, but to give it your spin, you know, your take on it. And, and I think he's doing a good job of that. And then of course you have everybody else. They're probably leaning more toward the hip hop thing now than, you know, the instrumental funk that we've all, you know, been raised on as far as that band is concerned. So, you know, you can't, um, you can't fault them. They, they're, they're changing with the times and they're doing it well. And George is a marvel at this point. It's yeah. <laughs> God bless him. Um, you know, did you guys ever consider doing, you know, sort of like a horny horns kind of thing of your own with Benny and, and Greg? We, we did, we did. And, um, you know, uh, it, it never really got off. And I'm thinking that we, the three of us had three different ideas of how it was going to happen or how we wanted it to happen. And, without a single minded plan, without a focus, those kind of projects don't happen. But yeah, definitely considered it. All right. Um, Want to touch a little bit more again on the 2002-2009 uh, MPG Prince years. And I'm wearing my MPG shirt in honor of your return today. <laughs> Um, before we get into that, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, mention and, and give some respects and some sorrows to the passing of John Blackwell about a week ago. Um, I'm pretty sure you worked with John. And um, do you have anything to, to comment on on his artistry and, and, and that passing? John was, you know, everybody speaks, you know, highly of his accolades on drums, his his talent, you know, his God-given abilities, but, you know, nobody really says anything about what a sweetheart, what a teddy bear of a human being John Blackwell was. And, you know, good musicians come and go, but good people, they, they're rare, you know, they are, you know, people that are genuinely great people, and he was one of them. And, I'll, I'll miss that more than anything. And yeah, it, it was great to play with him and, you know, to sit there and watch this guy just do his thing every night, you know, arms everywhere and groove, you know, pocket, like, I don't know what, but John as a person is what, well, I only say people that are close to him because, you know, not a lot of people see that side of him, but those who are close to him are going to miss that more than anything. Well, and that's good to hear, Greg. I mean, I didn't know him on that level, so that's especially um, touching to hear. Um, what I did know, though, was that, you know, when he came in, I thought he added so much to the sound. He added, you know, part of that return of organic instrumentation, and he was so good, and you could really hear that shine through on that Rainbow Children album. Yeah. That period in the early 2000s. Um, man, he was a, a force. Yes. Very much so. And and that's what I meant by watching him every night. You know, it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, when, when Dennis Chambers showed up. It's like, you know, this guy is a once-in-a-generation 
talent. You know, there's good drummers, there's great drummers. And then, you know, you break through that, you're going to see a Dennis Chambers and to sit there and just watch that guy every night. And it's like, okay, you know, you think you're used to it, but you're not. Your, your jaw drops and it's like the first time you saw him. And it just went on night after night after night. And playing with Blackwell was like that. It was like watching, you know, somebody being anointed with percussion dust and, and just losing it every night. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, he was a very dynamic musician. You know, as, as well as, like I mentioned before, you know, one of the greatest human beings ever touched the planet. And, you know, you don't think about, at least I didn't, you know, how young he was. But back then, I mean, he was a very young man. He was impressive at that age. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was playing with Cameo as a teenager. And, you know, not too long after that, he was playing with Patti LaBelle. And so, you know, he was a working drummer while he was still in school or, you know, in between school or whatever. I don't know exactly what the scheduling was between his attendance at Berkeley and all of these gigs, but I know he was 18 or 19 playing with one of the greatest funk bands ever. So, yes, you know, I think about a lot of similarities between, you know, Dennis and, and John. Well, rest in peace, Blackwell. Definitely be missed. Absolutely. All right. So what I wanted to ask you, Greg, was did, did you get any studio time with the MPG? We talked about the touring, and I wasn't sure if you had any yeah. studio work with them or not. Yeah, I did. Um, I counted five um, recordings with them. Definitely musicology. Um 2010, Planet Earth, um, drawing a blank for the other two. But well, 3121. Was the 3121, yeah, I forgot about that one. And it was one. And also Lotus Flower and. That's right, Lotus Flower. Yeah, you have them. Okay. Yeah, you passed the test, I failed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got to combine for our memories at this age. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Like I said, man, you know, I'm going to go into an Apple store and they're just going to have some kind of thing, a defrag button that they plug right into my ear and just show everything on the screen. I'll say, what do you want to get rid of? This, 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 and this. And maybe I'll be back to normal at that point. <laughs> well, what were those studio sessions like that? Did you just uh, do your parts separately or did you do some as a band or what was that like? Well, there were some that we you know, got together ahead of time and, you know, it says, okay, I'm doing this song tomorrow. And, you know, I would take, you know, listen to it, chart out something to go in the studio and knock it out, you know, like what I normally do. And sometimes it was just impromptu, you know, you're in the studio and it's like, okay, play something here. So, you know, we horn sex would get in the huddle you know, much like playing football in the street. Okay, you go down and you get to the Cadillac bumper, make a hard right, and the ball be there waiting for you kind of thing. Um, and then sometimes he just had a whole band in there. And he, and what I like to say is just hung a mic from the ceiling and just said, play. <laughs> and 
one of those sessions was a song called Get on the Boat. Mm -hmm. He just had the whole band in there playing live and quite possibly one of the funkiest songs I've ever played on in my life. Um, but yeah, I've done, those recordings were kind of funny. But I have to tell you this, is one of my favorite Prince stories. Um, we were in a, the very one of the early sessions we did. We finished up one song, we're going to take a break. Prince pulls me to the side and says that he has an idea for the next song. So he takes yellow legal pad. And I'm thinking, he's writing music on a legal pad? I'm like, well, you know, let's see what's going to happen. He takes a, a legal pad, he's a match mark, drops the pad on a table, and then walks out the studio. And I lean over, look at it. He wrote, help in green magic marker. <laughs> and before I could, you know, turn around and say something, he was already through the door. He just never even looked back. <laughs> so, you know, that's a testimony to his sense of humor, which, you know, not a lot of people knew about, but he was an absolute clown. <laughs> so and, did, did he uh, tend to give more freedom to like the horn players, you know, than some of the other musicians, given that, you know, he was a master pretty much at all the other non-horn instruments. So did he kind of really defer to the horn guys? He did to a point. I mean, you know, there was a, a lot of instance of come up with something. Or, you know, he would sit there and sing a line, you know, da, 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 da. and he says, okay, make that into a horn section, you know, or just harmonize it however you see fit. And that probably was more what he did uh, as far as the horn is concerned. He was just sing you an idea and just say, you know, okay, take that and mold it and shape it into something that would sound good. But because, um, like on a musicology tour, because there was a revolving door of musicians, like Maceo had his own group, Candy had her own group, Nazi would come and go, uh, Mike Phillips was was doing his own thing. I was in charge of writing out the charts for the horn section. So I had this thick book of all of the songs that we did. That way, if one person left and another one came in, they wouldn't have to relearn the whole set or the whole book or you know what harmony goes here there was it was already charted out so that's um if i had to say a, a contribution at all on behalf of myself that's probably uh that was my job i was the keeper of the book <laughs> <laughs> did you happen to remember playing a gig up at the fillmore in san francisco in 2004 I went up to that show. We traveled up there. We were in Los Angeles at the time, and my uh, my wife and I, I have to think of when we got married, but yeah, we were married then. We went up there, and uh, after the show, it was a great show, met um, Maceo, Mike, and Candy, and they all signed one of the posters for me. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was a terrific experience, and that was actually before the whole musicology tour. I think you guys were really just kind of ramping up for it. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, let's see, for musicology, we were rehearsing in Burbank up there, Zaltness, uh, big rehearsal lot studio out near the airport. And we were up there for two months, you know, 10 hour days rehearsing. And I think that that 
concert you're talking about might have been one of those instances where you just thought take the band out and see how they would play it how they would feel doing it in a live situation because we did a couple of gigs like that before the full-blown tour was in effect mm -hmm. so yeah that might have been one of those and it's funny because <laughs> a lot of people a lot of horns guys were like I don't know how that's going to work. Three altos on a trombone. But it did. And eventually, Prince says, okay, Mike, I want you to play tenor. Mm -hmm. Which really looked funny in his hand because I'd only seen him with an alto, you know. But then I was, he's showing up with this horn that just, to, I guess to anybody else, it didn't make a difference. But, you know, for people that are around that a lot, that just looked really funny seeing him hold a tenor sax but yeah that was, that was um uh, that was probably one of those test run concerts that you attended so you know with prince humming those parts to you i mean i could completely see that because when he got started that whole minneapolis sound you know a big part of that was sort of replacing the the horn parts with the synthesizer parts yeah and so he had to be you know an expert at horn type arrangements to create that whole sound and especially on songs like delirious and and all that stuff so i was curious greg is if at that time back in the early 80s when prince created that minneapolis sound and the keyboards were replacing horns how did you feel about that did you feel like man this guy is going to put us out of business <laughs> and you know it was funny because uh fred wesley said the same thing he's like you know Say, who's this guy? You know, you listen to it, Prince. You know, say, who's playing on this, Prince? Who's playing that instrument, Prince? Says, so this guy's playing all the instruments himself. And and this sounds just good. And they're like, yes. And Fred was like, man, this looks bad for the rest of us. <laughs> and being a horn player, in the 80s those years were lean man because you know it was the new thing to do you know why go out there and pay for three and four plane tickets three and four hotel rooms and moving these three and four guys around for a horn section where you could just hire one keyboard player to do all of that and it, the, i think after the novelty worn off and people started going back to having the authenticity of lungs and reeds and mouthpieces and valves and whatever because i haven't heard a keyboard yet and and you can get just about anything now that can emulate the true sound of a horn section i mean you know you the keyboards only come in at you from one aspect you know the the whole dna of three different, four different, five different people is um, not something you can duplicate on a machine, no matter how hard you try. So I think once it became a thing where I like live horns and there's, there's nothing you can replace it with, then yeah, things started picking back up again. Prince, I think more than anybody, though, a lot of guys got rid of their, their horn sections like Cameo and, and, and that, but, um, but they had more of a, embracing of the synthesizers and the sort of that 80s electronic sound 
but Prince really, I mean, the way he arranged those synthesizers, I mean, it sounded so much like horns and it had so much the feel of horns. Um, and I think that's what made the difference. So, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he's Prince, you know, uh, before he did what he did, you know, a lot of people, a lot of things influenced him. So, you know, it's not unusual for him to have them absorbed horn sensibilities by the time he was actually out there doing the thing on his own. I found it so interesting when he finally kind of came around and started getting real horns back. I think uh started with the parade in 86. He started bringing actual horns in after the Purple Rain thing. And and then he really kept going with it. So um, I think sometimes the guys, the guys tended to go the other way, you know, like, you know, your cameos and so forth. Like I mentioned, they, you know, had horns and got rid of them. A lot of guys did that, but not too many didn't have them and then got horns. Well, I think a lot of it too is economics. You know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, <laughs> you watching uh, bands like, you know, for example, Cameo go from being like 10 or 11 people down to three or four. And, and I wouldn't say that they really shrunk to that size, but the nucleus became very small and that, gave them the freedom, I think, to say, okay, we'll add one more instrument here, another one there, but it never got really big enough to where they could add a horn section. And I think all those old cameo records, I was like, how can you do all of that stuff without horns? And on the subject of cameo, one of my favorite horn records ever was Cameo's Machismo featured uptown horns it featured uh fred maceo miles is playing on it along with his sidekick kenny garrett and it just had killing ass horn arrangements on it and because it wasn't the same section all the way through the record mm-hmm. and and it was a lot of you know ma- machine drums and stuff i get that but the the horns on there you know if i were to recommend a record, album, CD, whatever you want to call it, for anybody interested in studying a horn section, that would be one of them. Hmm. You just re- reminded me of that because that was a follow-up to um, "Can't um, Word Up." So yeah. after they made all that money, they were able to bring some horns back. <laughs> and how about it? it? Mathematically worked <laughs> out. So we we talked last time about you know trying to keep up with uh, Princess crazy hours and it was like he never slept and, you know part of that was you know his famed after shows you know doing these shows all hours of the night you oh, know yeah. did you participate in a bunch of those and what, what was that that like and did you ever actually have to sort of you know kind of beg off any of those uh oh yeah i, I did a lot of those and i think prince being you know out there and doing his own thing at an early age I think he missed out on a lot of the stuff that we used to cut our teeth on. It's just like getting together and just playing stuff impromptu. Cause you know, he would call songs by other people. He would do cars and he would do some, um, some Hendrix uh, and he would do some tower power. You know, he just wanted to do all of those things that we did 
you know, before we actually landed gigs where we were only playing one person's material, just sit there and play everybody else's stuff. Now, along with that, he would play some of his B-sides and some of his C-side stuff, <laughs> you know, all of those obscure songs that, that he has recorded over the years and, you know, some of the lesser known projects. So basically it was just him having fun with music, not just his music, but music, period. And the benefactors were the people that were able to get to those um, after parties. You know, I could never understand how he could call us and say, you know, be in a hotel lobby in an hour, which would be like four or five a.m. We're going to do an after party, and no advertising or anything. You get there and the house is packed. Hmm. That to me is one of, to this day is one of the biggest mysteries. You know, what is the pipeline of information and, you know, how that many people in tune to it. But they were always just a sweaty, nasty, funky get downs. And they were incredible to watch because it wasn't like we rehearsed for it. I mean, they just, you know, you just knew the stuff. You know, it's like if you get in the band, you know, here's a list of songs we're going to do on tour. But. Here's a list of the songs that I do. And you get a really good band, they dig into all of that, you know, like it's last gig they're ever gonna have. So and they would get out there and do that. And it was on full display at ungodly hours in the morning. <laughs> and similarly, you had some of those uh, celebration events at Paisley Park. And did you do those too? Because I know during those especially. I mean, all kinds of songs he would bring back. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, that was like an after party. But I think he might have rehearsed a little bit more for those than he would, you know, the all-out jam that the after parties tended to be. But, yeah, I was. it was a lot of that. The celebration thing was. And then he'd bring in special guests, you know, um, Michelle Pharrell one year and you know, brought in Maceo one year before I even got in the band. Um, yeah, so that was, um, the, the, the celebration thing was a pretty big event. You know, people coming from all over the world to come to Paisley Park too. <laughs> and it, it's funny too, they call it a celebration, you know, Jehovah Witness, they don't celebrate birthdays, but it always happen on his birthday. <laughs> Read the subtext. Yeah. <laughs> yeah celebrating something, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Celebrate life, if not a specific birthday. Yeah. Um, so we talked about Blackwell. Whether musicians from MPG in particular really stood out to you, you know, in terms of their, their chops and, and also maybe quirky personality? Um, now, what was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> what players from the MPG, um, oh, okay. you know, in terms of their technical skills and, and their abilities, you know, really jumped out to you. Cause last time we talked about some of the specific P-Funk guys. Yeah. So I'm wondering which specific MPG players really jumped out to you from a musician standpoint. And then also maybe just from a personality perspective. They, they all did. I mean, 
you know, it, Prince is assembling the best musicians he can to pull off his music. So you just, you couldn't be no punk about your instrument or your musical contribution to being that band. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, so yeah, I remembered, you know, a lot of things like, uh, for example, you talk about John Blackwell, you know, we could talk about Mike Scott, you know, the guy was like an unsung guitar hero of sorts. And if anybody saw the, uh, MPG thing at the North Sea Jazz Festival, um, mm -hmm. last week, you know, it was like Mike Scott stepping out there and just running it and, you know, he's the kind of guy where you don't want to let him loose because he he will consume a room with his I mean, great rhythm player and outrageously talented lead player. Um, yeah, he was one of them. And, you know, you had uh, Renato Neto, who was just like a mad genius on keyboards. You know, probably the last person I saw that had the big, Herbie Hancock set up where it's one keys, two, three, just a rack all the way around. Cause you know, they're set up now where you get everything at one and you just have to play it, just be able to push the button to get the sound you want. And he was just spread it all the way out. Um, he brought a lot of the uh, a Brazilian sensibility to, and to some really way out jazzy voicings and stuff. The guy could just flat out play. You know, he's, um, he would probably be piano man from Billy Joel. You know, what the hell are you doing in here? He's that guy. <laughs> um, uh, Rhonda Smith, you know, she, and I'm not sure how much funk she listened to before she got in the band, but she's just such a consummate professional and such a study in the instrument that when Prince would say, play so-and-so, she'd nail it like a carpenter, play this, and she'd nail that. And it's like anything you threw at her, she could play and well. And, you know, very laid back kind of person, but you know, you, you, when the downbeat hits, She's all in. <laughs> um, and then there was um, Rad, you know, Roseanne um, Kirsch, who was there for like a hot second. You know, little teeny thing, but play, flat out play. I mean, it, 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 she probably is the closest thing that I've seen to George Duke outside of George Duke and it just the, I don't know if it's a Bay Area thing or not, but just the way she approaches playing. And you never really got to see that until you got her out of that situation because she just showed up at work and played all that Prince stuff. And then it's like, okay, take a solo. It's like, hey, she's a really great musician, but you really don't get the magnitude of how great she is until you see her off the grid and that and, and then of course you know all of the horn players you know you could go on and on and candy is is making a huge name for herself now and deservedly so and she was before then which is why she got prince's attention you know everybody just think ah you know it's, 
you know, she's way past anybody thinking, oh, she's just, you know, uh, a, a cute blonde on saxophone. She is the goods. And you don't believe me, ask Maceo. You don't believe me, ask Eric Leeds. You don't believe me, ask Mike Phillips. You know, all of these people have played with her. And all of these names I mentioned right now, all of these people are like beyond stellar on their respective instruments. And they will let you know Candy is no punk at all. Yeah, yeah just had the, uh, the fortune of having her sit in with us at the North Sea Jazz Festival. And I was like, dang, I missed that. <laughs> Um, I, I remember when she first came uh, on the public eye during the uh, Batman era of videos. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I vaguely remember that. I don't remember. I don't know. I guess, you know, after years of MTV, the, the videos just seem like less related to the songs and more related to being just like, you know, five minute movies or something. And I kind of got away from that. So. Plus, I just had better things to do to sit in front of a TV and watch, you know, music videos all day. Um, no doubt. The uh, only reason I knew was because it was Prince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but on the subject of those, I think, you know, and then you got Eric Leeds. You know, that guy is how he was able to fuse all of that hard bop jazz sensibility and wove it into the stuff that Prince was doing. You know, maybe Prince was looking for that sound for him or Eric was like, okay, I like this guy, Prince, let me do this to make it happen. But the two of them got together and they just locked. It's like fabric, man. And, and what an absolute beast of a saxophonist Eric Leeds is. And you really want to know you know, listen to some of his solo projects where he's doubling everything. He's playing alto and tenor and baritone sax and overdubbing himself. It's, he he might be the horn player, the, the one horn player that, that Prince had that was probably more suited for that band than anybody else. And... I even say that even more so than Maceo. I mean, you know, Maceo pretty much, well, we all know. The guy is so god-awful, funky. He can make the band stop and keep playing, and people would still be dancing on and on. And he, he's one of those few people that, that can blow one or two notes, and you immediately know who it is right away. Immediately, I mean, his his sound is just so distinctive. His approach to playing is just so rhythmic and, and so soulful and so heartfelt. Um, you're you're not going to get that again. And and you know, I know that you know they say, yeah, you know, something always happens, or you know, something replaces this, or you can't ever discount not ever seeing it. I will bet the farm or you're not going to hear or see another Maceo Parker ever. I don't dispute that. I mean, I've yeah. never heard anybody sound like Maceo. Um, yeah. And he's my favorite for sure. Um, yeah. But we got to get the, you got to still got to get the Mike Phillips too. See, he, 
I think he's the perfect fruit punch of hip hop, funk, and jazz, and front man <laughs> uh, I've ever seen. And you know, you, if you go see one of his shows, it's not just a good time. It's it's a music education. You know, I mean, he lets you know politically what's right and what's wrong with the music industry and what we as an audience can do about it. The whole time he's doing that, he is killing you. That, I, I had the, the pleasure of playing with Mike Phillips on his set. Might have been one of the most challenging shows I've ever played, but it wasn't anything great coupon jazz about it. It was a good time. It was one of the best concerts. And this is just Mike Phillips, you know, the guy, you know, it's, it's not somebody who you say, oh yeah, the, you know, the guy to play saxophone with him. He's sort of flying under the radar, but I strongly recommend anybody. If you know Mike Phillips is coming to town, go see the show. And I'm just going to leave it at that. You'll understand what the fuss is. <laughs> Well, what, when did you play with him? What year are you talking about? Um, after NPG, you know, do a couple of gigs here and there. I played with him. Last time I played with him, I think, was about a year and a half, two years ago. Because funny thing is, is whenever he comes, you know, to D.C. or Baltimore or somewhere close by, more often than not, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm on tour somewhere. Mm. So, which happened the last time he was here. Uh, I couldn't do it then, but the times that I've done it, it's just been crazy. You know, you're playing, you know, train one minute, and then you're playing Stevie Wonder the next, and then you're going right into Janet Jackson. <laughs> and, and, and he just covers the whole gamut. And it's from a musician standpoint, it's very challenging from a, a listener standpoint. It is very engaging extremely. So, you know, I don't want to leave him off that list of people I work with. But he got his props. For yeah. Sure. Uh, so in 2009, you part of ways with MPG and Prince is, you know, I mean, he's played with so many different musicians and people come and go. Yeah. What were the circumstances of you and then also Maceo uh, parting ways with MPG? Um, I just, um, you know, without really going deep into it, I just didn't want to do that anymore. It's, it, it was wearing me out, <laughs> long story short, but I, I, I'll leave it at that because, you know, it's just some details of, you know, my exit that I kind of like want to keep to myself. But, but yeah, Maceo, I think, was just at the point where you couldn't do his thing and do the Prince thing at the same time. And let's face it, you know, Prince has a band for a while and then he'll change direction. And then you say, okay, I want this type of band. And he says, no, I want this kind of band. And I might've been on the tail end of him changing his musical direction anyway. You know, that's what it felt like to me. So, 
that, that's how it seemed to me too as an outsider because he did that um i think welcome to america tour shortly after that which i think had horns but then after that i mean he got rid of the horns altogether and was doing the third uh um you know the girl band so. yeah the, the third eye girl third eye girl yeah yeah and then at the same time he had another horn section it was like a combination of two different horn sections because there were 11 guys <laughs> in the horn section i was like that's a marching band <laughs> it was huge but um <laughs> um yeah he just was going in a different direction and the band sounded different the whole horn section approach was different and yeah like i said it was probably just one of those things where okay it's going from summer to winter to fall or whatever Couple more Prince related questions and we're gonna move on. Yeah. Um, we talked about his sense of humor and a lot of people have mentioned that and the fact that most people didn't get to see that too much. But in general, Greg, did he come off as, as being, you know, eccentric and temperamental or generally as, as cool and fun, you know, working with? He, I think that he wasn't, so much temperamental when everything was clicking you know when the band would do this and he just clicking on all cylinders it, it was nothing for him to get upset about you know everything sounded great and but to his testament i think that when it got to a point where we felt like we were coasting along he wasn't really putting any real thought in it. He's autopilot, whatever you want to call it. He would change the show up. He would just like, oh, reverse it. You know, he would add something else, take out something, change a segue. And he would do that kind of thing to keep from being bored, I think. And so, you know, we as band members are like, welcome to it. You know, it was never any pushback. And it was never any what if or maybe we should, any uh, that type of thing. You know, it just was what it was. And I wouldn't call him temperamental. I would say that, like I said, he just got bored and just wanted to change it up. Last Prince question, that is, you know, what was like one or two things that you saw him do through those years musically that you were like, God damn, that is unbelievable. Did I just see that? I remember one night in particular. I mean, I see I see genius day in and day out, you know, in, in, in his respect. You know, the, the way he was able to sit there and basically run sound <laughs> from on stage, you know, he, he would you know, let the engineer know in the sound check is I need more of this, more of that in order for this room to sound good. Because he was good about taking a cordless mic and walking around the arena trying to hear how it sounded. But one night in particular, we were doing, he's got a song called Peach. It's basically a little blues, right? And it was the closest thing I've seen to the way Hendrix would come and sing at the same time 
and and sometimes the two would meet and sometimes it's almost like different people and he just ripped into this song he had the orange strat with the white pit guard and I, I i can't say what he was wearing but i just remember looking at that guitar and looking at him saying anybody that locked into their instrument before he was playing some of the most ferocious rhythm I've ever heard in my life. And I've played with Eddie Hazel and I've played with Boogie and I've played with Gary. I know rhythm when I hear it. And he was just so locked in. I was like thinking to myself, I'm not going to see this again. Yeah. You know, this particular thing, you know, the, the stars being all in a line, I'm not going to see this again. It was just that perfect and it was at an after party at the o2 arena over in london when we're doing the 21 night thing and i just said to myself i don't want to play i just want to watch and that probably that one moment probably more than anything i've ever seen was what i remember most about him just going into a zone unlike anything i've seen before that's really interesting to hear. A lot of people talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance and Super Bowl and those kinds of things because, you know, so many people saw them. Yeah. Um, but usually I think it's typically something like that that not as many people see that's yeah. just mind-blowing. Oh, don't get me wrong. He was getting his on that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I, I think that, well, in my opinion, what I saw from that was, was all of those people that were up there on that stage knew he could play. But they didn't know that that monster was inside him. I still, I still get tears thinking about that solo. And then, in, in, in typical Prince fashion, he just takes guitar and just throws it afterwards. Right? I mean, if you see that enough time, you know that he's got somebody down there already. You know, with a catcher's mitt or something, waiting to catch the guitar because he's going to throw it off the stage. You know that's going to happen, but. The thing I was talking about in the O2 arena eclipsed even that. Mm. And it was, <laughs> I'm laughing thinking about it. <laughs> he was on friggin' fire. And, and like I said, the, the closest thing I've seen, I mean, that's the closest thing I've seen to Hendrix um, ever. Mm. I never got a chance to see Jimmy live, but I was damn close that night. Wow. Yeah.